0: This is Anthony areno and you're listening to In the Arena. Stay-
1: One of the very first
0: interview podcasts I did here was Matt Dixon and Brent Adamson from The Challenger Sale. That was way back on December 2nd, 2011, and it's still posted at thesalesblog.com. They just put out a new article, this time Brent Adamson, Nick Toman, and Christina Gomez from CEB called The New Sales Imperative. Basically, the subtitle here suggests that we've made buying too complicated and we need to make it easier. But some of the statistics that they cite and their insights are so spot on. I asked Nick and Brent to show up here for another interview so that I can ask them questions about the article and go a little bit deeper than I did in a blog post I wrote called They Say Imperative and I Agree just a few weeks ago here on thesalesblog.com. So this is Nick Toman and Brent Adamson from CEB talking about the new sales imperative in the arena.
1: Hey, Brent. Hey, Nick. How are you? Doing well, Anthony. Well, you just wrote another provocative article. I think some people are going to be confused by this, so I'm going to ask you some questions to sort of guide us through what we know now and what your research shows that I think is going to help people see things in a different light. And maybe I can ask you to clear up a couple of things that I think people assume about your research that may not mean what they think it means. So let's start with the assumption that sits underneath your HBR article, the new sales imperative. And the assumption is that we believe as salespeople that our customers have the power and that they only need salespeople at the very end of the process. And you guys popularized a statistic that everybody has relied on to say buyers are 57% through their buying decision and what a lot of salespeople have interpreted that to mean is that there's no value to be created through that point. Can you speak to that issue?
2: Sure, Anthony. Hey, this is friends. There's all this, gosh, there's so many different ways we can come at this. So let me, let me just take a stab at it. So there's actually huge value. For a supplier, uh, there's huge opportunity to create value by a supplier in that first 57%. And notice I didn't say a sales rep, I said a supplier, only because I think it's really important to broaden the, the perspective of what we're talking about when we talk about selling, right? So there's a role in selling for whether it's an individual sales rep, a sales organization, or for that matter, a marketing organization through the content that a company or an organization produces To absolutely have a material influence on that buying organization, that customer organization in that first 57% of the buying process. The trick, of course, is to get access, right? So there's all sorts of things that we've seen at the individual sales professional level that, that they are doing in order to win the right to have access to those earlier parts of a purchase process. And there's all sorts of things that marketing can be doing to, to reach those customers where they're out learning and gaining information. That, and the other thing is just to tie it back into so all the work we've done on Challenger in the past. One of the things I think, Anthony, we particularly appreciate about sort of what we've learned about Challengers and Challenger selling is that in many ways when you're out teaching customers to think differently about their business – whether it's through your content or through your sales reps, effectively what you're doing when you do that well is you're creating, you're initiating a sales process. So it's not just that you're getting access to a process already underway earlier than most. You're actually generating, you're, you're essentially creating point zero with your insight and then uh, hopefully then staying connected to your customer on that journey going forward.
3: And Anthony, yeah. this is like, one thing I'd add, and I think this goes to the kind of baseline assumptions, is the fact that a customer can do research doesn't mean they're necessarily learning the right things or that that process is going smoothly, right? So they can figure things out in that first 57%. It doesn't mean they've got it right. And I think that's a big part of the assumption that the world looks at that 57% and says, wow, it must be perfect information. They must be making up their mind in a you know, remarkably clean fashion. And the reality is is there's a lot of dynamics happening with the information they're consuming, and the people that are part of that 57% process of them trying to make the decision. And don't assume that's clean. Don't assume that it's it's easy. Don't assume that they're that it's it's sort of a healthy process that they're going through.
1: I went out to uh, WebMD before I visited my doctor and diagnosed my own ailment and went in and told my doctor that I was 100% sure I had ovarian cancer. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he argued that it was not likely that I had that despite what WebMD told me. And I think that's the difference, right? There's information and there's insight. And that leads us to the problem inside your article that its customers are overwhelmed by information and they're struggling to make good purchase decisions. And I think, Nick, what you're alluding to here is that the fact that they have information doesn't necessarily help them make good buying decisions. It just provides them with information.
3: Yeah, the the analogy we, we love around the information is travel agents. And we talk about this analogy a lot, Brent and I do, and when you know we're sharing these ideas with folks. But if you look at what's happened in the travel agent industry over the past let's say fifteen years, right there was a time and a place where travel agents that was how you took a vacation was you you talked to your travel agent. Everything became available online, right? Explosion of information, all these peer reviews, all these websites I could go to to book flights, to book hotels, and everything was self-serve. And lo and behold, we saw travel agents decline precipitously through those years. Fast forward to 2014, 2015, and there was a pretty significant study that a group released – around the growth and explosion of of travel agents again, and we've gotten to this point where there's just so much information, there's just so many options that someone has to wade through and sift through. I mean, planning a vacation kind of becomes a project in and of itself, if you let it. And so many, many consumers now are just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, you know what, let me just outsource it. Let me just make it all go away, and someone's going to tell me what to do and get me to a good answer. So I think there's a lot of parallels here, and often, as with so many things in the B2B space, we see the consumer focused industries kind of hit these problems first, and so sure enough, we're seeing kind of that that information, glut of information, and in many cases, good information, but it's just too much of it to make sense of it. I can't get through it all. In some cases, it's conflicting. What do I believe? Gee, let's just throw our hands up.
1: Let me go to the solution that you prescribe, and then I want to pull out some quotes and have you respond to them. The solution, you say, is to make buying easier. Suppliers must create relevant tools, messaging, and guidance that helps customers at every stage of the process. And you know, I'm a pure sales guy, and that's what I am. So I think of this through the lens of a salesperson, and I've talked to you uh, offline about my new book, The Law Started Closing, because I do think it's imperative upon the salesperson to understand how to help buyers buy. And so a couple of the things that you suggest in the article or that you state in the article is that the information causes the customer to have more questions. Those questions lead to longer purchase decision-making cycles if they ever even decide at all. And on the outside, when I'm inside client locations and working with sales organizations, I see deals dying to the status quo more and more often because to me, the problem is that the internal process tends to be broken for the client. So they don't really have a process, but we've been told, and we'll get to this this concept about the buying journey, that once you know the buying journey, you know how to help them, but they don't know how to have those conversations internally. And then you've got more people being brought in, and so you've got competing personalities with competing priorities, and you've got the status quo, which is the devil we know, and silos and all kinds of personal issues. Tell me what this means for salespeople particularly. The fact that there's so much information, it's difficult to make decisions, and we have more people piling into this.
2: Well, they, right. yeah, I, I guess the, yeah, the way I would think about it is, to me, it's actually fascinating, right? To the, if you go back to sort of where the story started with customers empowered to learn. So the, the bumper sticker phrase, we like to well, customers may be empowered to learn. They're actually struggling to buy, which I think is absolutely right. But if your assumption is my customers are so empowered because they are, they've got all this information, they've got all these options, it seems like all the power is on their side. And that's sort of the model we've all been operating in for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, and it's certainly how we've thought about it in our research for a while. But what you find is that the, the natural inclination of most suppliers, and we see this practically out in the world every single day, that the natural inclination of suppliers to re, to respond to a empowered customer is we've got to give them what they want, right? If they've got all the power and they want more options, we've got to give them more options. If they want more information, we've got to give them more information. If there's more people, ask more questions. We've got to answer all those questions of all those different people. And so it becomes almost like a, a responsiveness arms race, right? So suppliers around the world all trying to be more responsive than the next to bend over backwards and provide that information, provide those options to do it quicker, to do it faster, to do it more agilely, do, do it agile er um, I don't think this works. So, uh, go,
3: but but go yeah, ahead. go ahead. So with more agility.
2: <laughs> and so yeah, you see companies, and it's not all of what's going on, but part of what's going on you see companies making massive investments in improving the customer experience, right? Because the idea is in a world where it's so hard to differentiate ourselves on anything else, one of the ways that we can differentiate ourselves on is is by providing being more responsive to customers. So so that's sort of where we come into the story is that suppliers in this arms race to become more responsive to their customers who they perceive to be empowered. Now, when you actually shift gears and start thinking about customers less as empowered and actually more as overwhelmed, which when you talk to thousands of customers we have, that's what you find to be the case. And We can dig into that if you want a little bit but what you find is the solution to an overwhelmed customer is in many ways the exact opposite of a solution for an empowered customer because the the very thing that you're doing in response to empowered customers of being more responsive giving more options giving them more information bending over backwards takes a overwhelmed customer who has already got too much information too many options and too many people and actually makes it worse. So the, the solution here is not to give them what they want. The solution here is to give them what they need, which is to actually make it easier for them to buy. The, the, it's really fascinating, that this idea of what we landed on called prescription, which is the travel agent concept as well. Is the suppliers that are winning in this world are not the ones being especially responsive, rather the suppliers winning in this world are the ones being especially prescriptive, taking that customer by the hand and helping essentially proactively determining for that customer which information matters most, which options are most important, who are the people that matter most, when should they get involved, and guiding that customer through that purchase, not in terms of buy our stuff, but helping them understand how to buy, literally coaching them right. on a buying process that they themselves may not understand.
1: What's interesting to me about this is that from a sales perspective, a lot of salespeople believe because there is this empowerment through information and because they are the one that's buying and because they suffer from this delusion that the buyer really has a well-thought-out internal process, which unless there's an RFP, they don't, is that we think that they're in control of the process. And I think the challenge here for salespeople is that they think we're supposed to know how to do this And if you, I told Nick this the other day, I continually tell sales audiences you only need two things to be a trusted advisor, and they shout all kinds of answers, and then I tell them the two things are trust and advice. And if you don't have the advice, you can just be trusted, but you can't be a trusted advisor because you don't know how to really help them do what they need to do. And understanding how to move their organization to change means being prescriptive and helping the customer understand how they need to go and who we get involved and when we bring them in. And I shared a story with Nick about a technology company. And if they go to marketing, which is who their product really serves, marketing is petrified of bringing IT in because IT is going to make it way more complicated, gripe about not having space on the project board, tell them how they could do it internally themselves, and they have this big, long interaction. But when they don't bring the IT department in, it dies anyway. And so there's this great fear because the buyer thinks they're going to lose control of this. But with prescriptive salespeople who come in and can explain the process, look, if we don't bring them in now, we have a bigger problem later. Let's find a friendly that we can get into this conversation so we can get some air cover. Let's get somebody from executive leadership in. And having that conversation is what actually helps the person that they're trying to help with the outcome get the outcome that they really need.
3: Yeah. You know, and what what's interesting, Anthony, and we were talking about this the other day, there's this kind of assumption out there that to your point, customers know what they're doing when they make these purchases. And even I would I would kind of I would take issue even with your statement on whether or not there's an RFP. I I, I think in many cases there may be an RFP. It's still it, it's sort of masking the the issues going on behind the scenes and there's always issues going on behind the scenes, right? But the reality is customers don't buy our products or our services or our solutions every single day, yet we sell them every day. So we see the best practices in how to buy if that makes sense, right? We see yes. the trials and tribulations. We know the trip points. We know the pitfalls. We know where customers are going to get it wrong. And one of the, the really interesting data points, we put, it, you know, we put it in the article, but we found the vast majority of salespeople essentially give the customer what they're asking for at that moment, even if they disagree with how the customer is approaching the sale, right? I see you going off the cliff, customer. I'm just going to go ahead and give it to you anyways. And yeah. so the reality is we know how to best buy, We know how to think through that purchase. We know the considerations, the concessions. We know what the requirements really ought to be. We know who should be involved and when. And it's so rare that there's almost this permissions gap where where salespeople don't feel like, you know, that's the customer's business to decide who's going to be involved and when and why. And the reality is you see the best sellers are out in front of that and, and really teaching their customer the best practice for procuring whatever it is they're selling.
1: With this responsiveness, what I think salespeople are used to is providing proof. And so the customer says, I'd like information about this. And we say, here's proof that we're good at this. Here's proof that we have these capabilities. Here's proof that our solution works. And I think that uh, one of the things that your research has shown going back to Challenger, which have been, that book's been out a long time. I was just thinking about that. This is not a new book anymore. But the concept is I think really we have to answer why change before we answer why us. But salespeople want to get to the proof providing and the responsiveness because they're really trying to say, you need a preference for us. And that preference isn't really created by the product or the service. It's created by, I think, what the value the salesperson brings when they're sitting across from the client, actually helping them get what they want through this process.
2: I think that's part of it, Anthony. What's interesting is there's another part of the story, too, though. So, I mean... If Challenger is really sort of helping teach your customers, or if you want, as we like to say sometimes, unteach your customers around what to buy, then prescription is really teaching your customers around how to buy. So I'm totally with you on the, well, you know, customers, ultimately, what what we're all selling is the same thing. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, we're all selling change. We're trying to get our customers to change their behavior, and this is a theme that we really hit hard in the second book, The Challenger Customer, and spent a lot of time talking about that. But one of the things we found is that the scope of this idea of prescription, in some ways, is actually much bigger. And here's what I mean by that. So one of the things that I've done personally, and Nick and I have done as a team, is so we've traveled, and I've traveled all over the world, and I've talked to heads of sales and marketing about this, this idea. And I'll ask them to simply, it's like the moment of empathy, right? It's like I ask them to simply take their sales hat off, their marketing hat off, and put on a buying hat. And just think of across the last 12 to 18 months in their own organization of a large, complex B2B solution say a purchase, that they made at their own company. Oftentimes it's a marketing automation system or maybe a CRM system. And I ask them, think about who was involved, think about what was hard about it. Think about the challenge you ran into the questions you had, the, the place, the roadblocks you ran into, and think about the what, what what worked, what didn't work. And then I simply ask them, there's two questions I think are really telling in this entire exercise I do. And I've done this with literally thousands of people. I'll simply ask them, first of all, all right, now if you were to pick one word, one adjective to describe that entire purchase experience what would that word be then the words they use not surprisingly are long frustrating awful horrible i mean just the amount and and they don't just say them they feel them like it's like it becomes very visceral very quickly as people think back on their purchase journey and like someone in chicago when i was doing this that i never want to do that again ever and you can tell she was like (laughs) angry she was like reliving the whole thing and you stop and think about like what do you do when the first thing your customer thinks about when buying your solution is, I never want to do that again, ever? So that, that's part of it. Here's, where, here's the kicker, Anthony. This is where it gets really interesting because then the second question is this. You ask the second question, which is, all right, now think about all that pain, all that time, all that frustration, all of that awfulness, and ask yourself, how much of that pain and frustration was the result of the supplier selling to you, and how much it was simply your own company getting in its own way? And what do you think they say?
1: I'm interested to hear the statistical numbers on that, but I imagine they think it's their own
2: company. Inevitably, right? So I, don't, yeah. I, I wish I could give you data, but I've, again, this is more anecdotal. I've done this literally yeah. thousands of people, and we all say the same thing because we all know it to be true. And you know what? It's our own company getting in its own way. But what's interesting, in other words, buying, it's not just that, you know, you are making buying hard because your legal contracting team is hard to work with. Somebody's like, it's like it got hard long before you ever entered the scene as a supplier. And so what's interesting, though, is we as a supplier pay a huge price for that buying pain, even if we weren't the cause of the pain in the first place, through a through, uh, stalled deals, through status quo, and through something we'd never thought to study until this particular project, which is something we call purchase regret. We know that the more overwhelmed the customer, the more likely they are to regret whatever it is they bought, even if the supplier wasn't the cause of the pain in the first place. So it's a a really fascinating problem, which we have to solve as suppliers, even if we weren't the cause of it to begin with.
1: I think that that regret is still, it's coming from, I still didn't know something. I still wasn't sure. I made a decision, but I still don't know, was it really the right decision? Did I do right by my company? Was there something better available? It's still the confusion.
3: I think, Anthony, this is Nick. I would even add it's the confusion, certainly, that has that kind of hangover effect. But I think in many cases, it's the stakeholders and their inability to agree on much of anything certainly can't agree to really tackle the problem they set out to agree on in the first place, and they get to some point of good enough. They get to the lowest common denominator, and they purchase that thing, whatever whatever form it happens to take at that point. And so you look at the original problem you set out to solve, this big, hairy, nasty problem for the business, and you get to the end and you look at the purchase and you hold it up against that problem and, yeah, you know, maybe it solves a fifth of the problem. And so that, that I think, is where oftentimes the regret comes in is, is someone just has to pull the trigger at some point, whatever we're kind of agreeing on, and usually it's less budget than we thought from the beginning. Nobody's really willing to pitch in and everybody's taking a more conservative stance towards the, the purchase, right? We don't want all the features. We don't want all the benefits. We don't need all those things, when in reality... You did need all, you needed every aspect of it to solve the problem you set up to solve in the first place. And I think that's the bigger point. And that's where more of that regret creeps in. And, and the reality is, we're seeing north of 40% of completed purchases, north of 40% of completed purchases have some form of regret attached to them. And so it's really interesting because we're back at headquarters slapping high fives, cracking the champagne open. Celebrating these big wins, and the reality is you know, the customer is now looking at us with a very tainted lens and nowhere near as happy they made that purchase, and surely a year later, you know, nowhere near as satisfied as we thought they'd be.
1: It's uh, interesting because the the second book, I basically lay out a framework for making change inside a company, and it starts with the commitment for time and then goes into the commitment to explore change. And then I've got the commitment to change very early on, which means you have to have conversations with stakeholders as to, do you really want to make this kind of change? And I think the enemy of that change is good enough. And I think when people see the book, they're going to be surprised at how early the conversation around investment tends to happen. Because if you don't match that investment up and get an agreement on what it really needs to be to generate the outcome, Nick, what I see is that people go with good enough. And then part of their regret is that they went with good enough and they didn't really get what they really wanted because they didn't spend the time to have the internal conversations that they need to have and because they didn't have those conversations now everybody's unhappy and nobody got what they really wanted and good enough oh, is yep. is the enemy i think
2: it, you know and the thing is Anthony it's just, it's soul crushing right i mean it's it's just it's just awful and it's so interesting when you ask about when you ask senior leaders about their purchase experiences The conversation, as I mentioned before, becomes very visceral very quickly. I mean, this isn't just something you sort of rationally know. You feel this, right? You feel like, oh, God, I never want to do that again. Now, what's also interesting is when I ask sales reps that same set of questions, I say, they kind of intuitively know it, but because they themselves haven't oftentimes been part of those buying groups, it's more of a, maybe they don't like buying, but they haven't been there. They haven't felt it. So in many ways, this idea of prescription for individual sales professionals feels less urgent because they haven't been in those buying group meetings where your soul just gets sapped and you just want to Die right, and it's like it's kind of true. So that I think is what's so interesting is for sales reps. Again, this is a moment of empathy: is to put yourself in the shoes of your customer and ask yourself, not what does it feel like to sell, but what does it feel like to buy and to anticipate those obstacles, to anticipate that frustration, and and to be that that travel agent is there, who's there, who can say you know what, this is hard. And I've worked with a lot of companies like yours and we've seen them struggle. Let me give you a couple pieces of advice because I think I can help you make this all a lot easier. And notice making it easier isn't just buy my stuff. It's completely agnostic of your stuff and your solution. It's just to help your customers just take some of that pain away, take some of that frustration away, just make that buying easier. Now, to do that in a way that leads back to your solution is, of course, crucial so you can sell something. But the thing you're solving for here in this prescriptive world is, in fact, buying is hard. We've got to make it easier.
1: I think that for salespeople, the concept in the second book that I I think ties directly to this is you have to solve the process. And so you have to have the commitments that say we're actually going to engage in a process. And I'll ask you to talk about this in a way that I think will help salespeople. But you've got the barriers that pop up to people. So I think that they get conflicting information. They don't know what to believe or who to believe. And having somebody who can act as a trusted advisor and say, let me explain to you the dissonance that you're feeling right now and how you might think about that. And then you've got the middle problems, as you describe in the article, where I've got to get a number of people to say yes to doing this with me. And they have competing priorities, and there's politics and silos and all this other stuff. And then I have the late obstacles that cause people to basically, in my experience, they just defect from the process altogether. And they say, I can punt this down the road, and we'll look at it another time. There's plenty of work to do here. There's other initiatives that are competing for our time and our money and our attention we'll shift over to something else where we might have better luck. So can you just talk about the barriers for a minute and what salespeople, how they should think about that?
3: This is Nick, I think I think the the so there's two schools of thought on this. One is you could try to identify every conceivable single barrier out there and as a commercial team, and you yourself would become mired down in the number of, of possible pitfalls, right? And that's not really our guidance. I think the better sales reps, those who have been down this path multiple times with customers, will just intuit right, more of those pitfalls. I think the reality is we need to think about kind of what about the person who's been in seat for a year or 18 months and is out there trying to help customers through this process, through this very difficult, arduous decision-making process. And I think if we optimize towards them, Anthony, you know, and this is the guidance we give in the article, you really do need to, to try to identify the most likely and most common challenges that customers face at those points of consideration. Right, So early on, just getting their head around the problem itself and the information that they want to consult around that problem and sizing the problem and just getting some degree of agreement early on on just what exactly are we trying to tackle. Next, getting into that, that stage of, of really the people challenges, as you mentioned. So this is bringing a broader group of stakeholders in on the purchase, trying to get them aligned on what are we going to ask for in terms of specifications, what requirements do we need. And this is often agnostic of suppliers. We're just trying to get our head around what is – the level of technical performance or the need set that we're really trying to have this particular solution solve, And there's a couple of known challenges you'll see time and time again. So get to those most common pervasive challenges and help you feel recognize those are the things we're up against. And finally, the latter stages, right, the options. This is where customers get bogged down and wanting to sort of, but can it do this and can it do that can we do this? And we've got another competitive option over here that does a little bit of that. So you know, can it do this? So really beginning to identify what are the likely options challenges that they're going to face, right, as they try to get this thing to final configuration and help them think through that. So we've seen, and we list in the article a handful of different approaches. And we've just put out a blog post, in fact, just today with a few more different approaches around how companies have identified those very common challenges. And then more importantly, put in place corrective actions, tools, frameworks, diagnostics, workshops, you name it, but ways to help the customer just quickly get their head around that challenge and take immediate action on it. So I think that's that's the guidance I would give is, is really don't try to be all inclusive on every single challenge, identify the most prominent, commonly occurring challenges for any given solution set, and you're going to see those patterns very quickly.
1: What I see at the end of the process with buyers is a fear of unresolved concerns, and that all starts to build together to cause them to want to either postpone the decision or spend more time gathering more information. And I think for a lot of them, the concern is, is it right? Am I getting exactly what I want? Are we really going to be able to execute? And they tend to try to have that conversation internally. And I think salespeople a lot of times make the mistake of saying, well, the customer asked for time to make this decision. But they're ending up with that same dysfunctional group that doesn't agree, trying to answer the question about what's right. And you really need somebody to come in and say listen, you're going to have questions and concerns. You should meet with your team and then let us come in at the end of that meeting so we can make sure we address all your questions and your concerns so that you're 100% confident getting what you want. And again, that's prescriptive. And it's saying, I'm going to control the process, which means we can't control the outcome necessarily, but we can make sure that there's a good process in place that lets the customer get a good outcome and lets us have the best shot of serving them.
2: In fact, I I would take it sort of one notch further. So imagine a world where you would say, Hey, you know, in working with other customers like you, one of the things we found is it actually really helps to get the group together and just to have a conversation. Now, I understand you may not want us to that that conversation. That's totally fine. But what I would suggest to do is get everyone in a room if you can. And the three things that you really want to look at are probably these three. And I would probably – I would suggest – what well, we learned from other companies, you probably want to do it in this order. And by the way, when that happens, there's two questions I think you're likely to get stuck on. So let me just give you a sense of what those questions are. And when they come up, here's probably the best answer. And I guarantee you when the legal team comes, they're going to have this question. So let me give you an answer to that question right now so you don't have to come back to me later to get it in uh, afterwards. And when you do that, the three options that you should consider, I think the criteria that most likely are going to be the ones in play, given what your CIO is working on, is probably this, this, and this. You might want to consider. So, so you know, whatever, I'm just making this up as I go at the moment. But well, think about it from a customer's on. perspective, how helpful that is. Like, again, the reaction for your customer is like, wow, I would have never thought of all this. Stuff. This is really helpful. That was fantastic. You made it so much easier for me.
1: It's the trusted advisor question again. I mean, you have to be able to advise and just telling them, here's what you're going to hear. Here's your choices. Here's what we think the best option is. I think that's the person who creates a preference for themselves and for their company and for their solution because they're the one that actually knows how to get that
2: outcome. And notice, notice how much more concrete that is, Anthony, than sort of a sales rep might say. Yeah, well, I think a meeting might be a good idea. I tell, you, why don't you guys have the meeting? And then if any questions come up in that meeting, you just let me know what you guys yeah. need, and I'm more than happy to provide you more information. Just think about the way that just felt as I said that versus what I was saying before. It's like you haven't made anything easier. You just like left me out there to kind of twist in the wind, and that's a, by myself. And, and yet, from the rep's perspective, I'm just being the the you know the service oriented, responsive rep. Hey, whatever you need, use if you need more information, you let me know. So, it feels like I'm doing the right thing, but from the customer's view, it's not that I feel like you're doing the right thing or wrong thing. Just feels like I'm exhausted and overwhelmed.
1: I could keep you guys here the rest of the day, but I think we're probably about 30 minutes in. And I think this is going to be mind-melting stuff for salespeople to listen to. We'll put a link to the article in the podcast so people can go there. And we'll also put a a link to your new article on your site, your new blog post, too, to give people another look at this. But thanks so much for for giving us your time. The article is excellent. I think it's going to do a lot to help shape the way that people are thinking about what our role is now, if we want to be consultative, if we want to be a trusted advisor, and if we really want to serve clients. So thanks so
2: much. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate the opportunity. You're welcome, sir. Congrats on your second book, Anthony. We're super excited to see it.
0: That was Brent Adamson and Nick Toman from CEB talking about their article, The New Sales Imperative, which you can find in the show notes. Also pick up their book, The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer, two of the most important works on sales in the last couple decades. I'm Anthony Anarino, You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I blog daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I also do a daily video blog, which is about four or five minutes long. Do hit the subscribe button when you're there. If you found value in this podcast, do go out to iTunes and give me a five-star review and leave a comment. It helps us find our way into other people's iPhones so that they can get this content as well. Until next time, this is Anthony areno and I will see you here in the
1: arena.